Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Nice to be here with you this morning, this Sunday before Christmas Eve. Let's pray that God would help us uh, think about his word to us today. Uh, Heavenly Father, please speak to us uh, by your spirit through the pages of scripture. Remind us or tell us truths we need to know. Help us to trust them and to apply them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure many of you have worked out by now that the teachings of Jesus are so often at variance with the teachings of the world. In recent weeks, we've seen uh, Matthew, or in, in the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen Jesus expressing viewpoints which were very non-first century. He seems to place a greater priority on children than was common at the time. He seems to place a greater priority on marriage that was common at the time. But we've also seen him saying things which have been pretty hard to accept by any people in any culture at any time. So he's been saying things like, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And things like, lose your life for me and you'll find it. Or things like, take up your cross and follow me. I mean, who wants to take up their cross, really? And while we today might see these um, teachings and appreciate their value and their point, when we really think about them, they're really still very hard to accept. And today we're going to get another classic example of Jesus's hard-to-accept teaching. Consider the question, how can we be great? Well, the first century Greco-Roman culture had a very simple answer to that question. You become great by getting as much honour as you can for yourself and for your family. They even had a word for it, uh, philotimia, the love of honour. That's what they strove for. And this also crept over into first century Jewish culture as well. Many of you would have heard of the Jewish historian Josephus. Well, amongst his many writings, Josephus wrote something of an autobiography, you know, stuff you write about yourself. Here is an early extract from, from his autobiography. Brought up with Matthias, my own brother by both parents, I made great progress in my education, gaining a reputation for an excellent memory and understanding. While still a mere a big boy, about 14 years old, I won universal applause for my love of literature. And he goes on in this sort of vein. He's quite comfortable to talk himself up get honour for himself. Now, uh, 21st century Western culture, I think, is very big on putting ourselves first, but in a slightly different way, not so much the gaining of honour, but in looking after our own interests and desires. Uh, there is a gentleman by the name of Tony Gaskin, a motivational speaker, who uh, pithily says, know who you are, know what you want, know what you deserve, and don't settle for less. Sounds like a motivational speaker, doesn't it? Go back about 50 years, late Australian rock and roll from the 1970s, uh, Masters Apprentices, do what you want to do, be who you want to be. Yeah, you know, the, no, that's the year on the end. <laughs> Let's go back 100 years to the early 20th century. Uh, here's a quote. Look out for number one. If you don't, no one else will. Now, what philosophical luminary was that? Well, it was a US racketeer and crime boss by the name of Arnold Rothstein. But I think he was really expressing what a lot of people would have thought anyway. Now, the topic of how to be great comes up in today's reading. 
And Jesus' teaching, I think, will challenge our thinking. What he's going to say is that true greatness, real greatness, greatness which matters to him and which really matters full stop, true greatness is in serving others. Here we go, true greatness is in serving others. Now this morning we're finishing our term four series, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we've arrived at chapter 20 verses 17 to 34, I hope many of you have picked up an outline on the way in. Firstly and fairly briefly, I'm going to show, uh, talk about Jesus foreshadows greatness in service, that's verses 17 to 19. Then we're going to spend most of our time on Jesus' teaching about greatness in service, that's verses 20 to 28. And then very briefly at the end, Jesus demonstrates greatness in service and verses 29 to 34. So let's start off by thinking about Jesus foreshadowing greatness in service, verses 17 to 19. I wonder whether you have ever found yourself giving clear teaching and instruction to someone or a group of people You've given it to them time and time again and they just don't seem to get it. There's some parents here, so I imagine there are probably at least a few of you. Well, uh, my wife has told me um, that when she taught scripture in the local schools, the following situation was pretty typical. Uh, She would, uh, and I'll generalise here a bit, she'd tell the students, you know, look, we're not saved by being good enough. Uh, No one's good enough, but Jesus saves us because he can forgive us. You see, it's not what we do which saves us, but it's receiving what Christ has done that saves us. It's not our good works, it's God's grace and generosity to us. Do you understand? Mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. End of the year, she'd say, so how do you become a Christian? They all go, oh, by being good, right? I'm glad you laughed because, you know, know, I weren't taking it on board, it seems. Now, uh, Jesus is having a bit of an experience like that with his disciples because in verses 17 to 19, he talks about his upcoming uh, death and resurrection for the third time recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 18, we read, Jesus talks to his 12, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, a few things don't seem to have twigged with his followers at this point. That he's actually going to rise from the dead after he dies. Why do I say that? Well, because in the other Gospels, in Luke and John, after Jesus' crucifixion, his followers seem to have no expectation that he's going to rise from the dead. They're in hiding. It hasn't sunk in. And then uh, Jesus' death and resurrection being central to his saving mission... They haven't really got that yet either. Now, to be perfectly clear, uh, Jesus hasn't made it crystal, crystal clear yet that he's dying for people's sins. He's going to make it much clearer a few verses later in verse 28. And thirdly, uh, Jesus has been talking about going to the cross and his followers taking up their cross. Um, It may not have twigged with them yet that following Jesus could in fact involve a bit of hardship for them. Uh, And that seems to be suggested by the question which James and John's mother is going to ask of Jesus very shortly. Because the question which uh, James and John's mother asks of Jesus seems to be jarringly out of touch, which is what, what, what has just been taking place. But it does give Jesus the opportunity to provide them with some really well needed teaching. 
So let's move on to the second section. Uh, Jesus teaches about greatness in service, verses 20 to 28. And I think the opening verses highlight the need for this teaching. Remember, Jesus has just been talking about how he's going to suffer and rise. And then the mother of Zebedee comes up to him and says, boy, that's really hard, Jesus. We're going to be praying for you. No, she doesn't say that. What she says is, um, she, I want to ask you a favour. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, she's basically asking that when the kingdom comes, that her two sons are going to be given the second and third most important positions in it. Obviously, Jesus is going to get the main job in the kingdom, but right and left hand, second and third most important jobs. Wants them for her sons. Now, um, it's like going up to the Prime Minister today and saying, look, hello, you know, uh, Stephen Liggins here. Um, my son uh, Bill is really good with numbers. I wonder whether you can make him your treasurer. My daughter's really good with people. I wonder whether you could put her in charge of foreign affairs, right? Could you do that for me, right? It's that sort of thing. Well, uh, that's what she does. Now, a good question to ask, though, is what sort of kingdom does she think that this kingdom is going to be, that her sons are going to be so important in? I mean, if number one in the kingdom, Jesus, is about to be crucified and she's heard that Jesus' followers are going to have to take up their cross, I wonder whether she expects that numbers two and three are going to have some sort of cushy existence. I mean, what is she, what's she thinking? Is, she, is it really twigged with her what the kingdom, at least in the short term, is going to be like? Now, whatever she thinks, uh, she clearly wants honour for her sons. Was she an ambitious parent? Had her sons put her up to it? We don't know. Wouldn't be surprised me if either was true. Well, I think the lack of comprehension on behalf of the petitioners continues. Because Jesus says in verse 22, look, you, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Now, what do they think this cup's going to contain? Earl Grey? A flat white? Wine? Beer? Well, no, uh, the cup in scriptures in the Old Testament can refer to something far less palatable, palatable. Sometimes it refers to the wrath of God. I think on some occasions it refers to suffering. Now, is a cup like that the cup they really want to drink? We can, they say, but I suspect they don't really know what they're saying they can do. But then significantly, Jesus actually agrees that yes, you, you, they will drink of this cup because it seems that Jesus knows that James and John will be suffering in the future. And you may know that I think it's Acts chapter 12, James is martyred uh, by one of the Herods, killed for his faith. And then if you know the beginning of Revelation, you know, you know that John ends up exiled as an older man on the island of Patmos. Now, of course, I didn't know that yet, but they were going to drink of the cup of suffering. Now, uh, the following verse is also illuminating as well. Verse 24, when the ten, that's the rest of the apostles, heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They're indignant with James and John. Now, why do you think they're indignant with James and John? Do you think they're thinking, oh, come on, guys, don't you know that following Jesus is all about service of others? You know, what's this trying to get glory and honour for yourself? It's all about service. Do you think they're indignant for that reason? Well, I suspect not. I think they were indignant because they wanted to sit on the right and left themselves and they were a bit annoyed that James and John had got in first. Well, 
sometimes in our family at home, something happens, one of the kids will do something rather or say something rather, and it strikes me, aha, now is the time for me to convey a good life lesson to the kids. And sometimes I'll even say to them, okay kids, life lesson coming here, and I'll say some, you know, uplifting or helpful thing for them. Well, I think Jesus is about to give his followers one such life lesson. He's about to teach them that true greatness is found in service. Verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Now, uh, despite uh, the recent popularity of the servant leadership movement, which is a management theory which I'll come back to a bit shortly, um, the majority of the workplaces, I think, and organisations and clubs really are rife with self-interest. Now, we've been pretty well socialised as people, so we can disguise it and express it in socially acceptable ways. But sometimes we sort of, you know, let it get away from us. And in many uh, groups of people, uh, there are often clashes which come out uh, where people's self-interest is in conflict with someone else's self-interest. Office politics. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Uh, people naturally prioritise their own self-interest. In the West, people naturally think that they need to look out for number one, that being themselves. For example, in a, let's say it's an election. When you're deciding who to vote for in an election, do you vote for the party which you think is going to do the right thing by you or the party who's going to do the right thing by most people in Australia? Uh, I was speaking with Kerry Bartlett, who's a member of one of our congregations here. Uh, he was a former federal member for Macquarie. He told me the story earlier in the year about a time when he was you know, seeking election and he was doing door knocking of the local area and he came across some lady who said to him, look, uh, your party's policies are not in my personal interests, but I'm going to vote for your party anyway because I think it will be better for the country. Now, the reason why he told that story and why I tell it to you is because it's so unusual. It's so unusual, it's, it's, it's noteworthy that someone decides not to vote for their own self-interest but what they perceive to be best for the majority of people. Interesting, isn't it? Politics. What about in churches? Um, are we primarily focused on what's best for me personally or what's best for the church as a whole? Or perhaps even what's best for the community in which we live? Uh, in 1964, there was a um, well-known philosopher by the name of Anne Rand. Some of you may have heard of her. She published a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. And she proposed a system of ethics uh, whereby um, its basis was promoting your own self-interest. And she felt that altruism, that is, helping others, was a destructive thing, right? Now, uh, she was a bright lady and I'm sure she had a more complex argument than the way I've summarised it but I don't think that's going to be the sort of book which Jesus will be endorsing on the dust jacket, right? Seems to be quite at variance. Yet this was a big book back in the 60s. Now, Jesus is teaching here that greatness is found in service. Actually, like all biblical ethics, functions to seek to bring glory to God. It also is best for others and counterintuitively, it's best for ourselves as well. 
Let me talk about each of those. Service of others glorifies God. I took the funeral on Friday for a friend of mine called Ruth Gilmore, who will be known to many of you, a lady about 85 years of age. And um, there are many fine people at our church, but she was certainly one of them. Uh, for the 11 years that I knew her, she was always keen and available and happy to be involved in ministry at church. She taught scripture uh, in our local, uh, in our area and others for over 40 years. She helped out in various ways at Buckland and the Endeavour Nursing Home, uh, now Springwood Greens. She was an incredible visitor of people. She was always visiting and popping in on people. She happened to be a good pianist. She was good at praying in church. You've ever heard her pray. Her prayers were very distinctive and, and good. She was a surprisingly good public speaker. She, but she was kind and she was humble. She would not push herself forward. She wouldn't talk about herself that much. Uh, and um, she was well regarded by everyone. She was well regarded by the people who knew her at church, but she was well regarded by all the people who weren't believers who knew her. People at Buckland, people elsewhere. Everyone who knew her, pretty much, uh, held her in really high regard. Now, Ruth was the way she was because of the work of God in her life over 85 years. And I think her life really brought glory to God. Just her humble attitude of service. Um, I think she was a great lady, thanks to God, obviously. Service of others clearly helps others as well. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Robert Greenleaf, uh, who was the so-called founder of the servant leadership movement. This was a philosophy of business management, as I understand it, which sought to prioritise not maximising the benefits for your own company or organisation, but rather serving the people uh, in your organisation. So the, the leader of a company would serve his staff rather than having the staff serving him. Wikipedia says he was the founder of the servant leadership model. But I wonder whether credit for the servant leadership model should really go about 2,000 years earlier <laughs> to Jesus. That's where I think it really comes from. And then, um, perhaps counterintuitively, uh, service of others actually is good for us as well. So Ruth Gilmore, who I talked about, I think she was basically a very satisfied person in her life. Now, Reflecting on her life, there could have been quite a few things in her life which she really could have been quite discontent about. But she seemed to be quite satisfied. I think that her service of others, you know, was, had the, the side effect of being good for her. Think about it if you're an adult. Probably the older we get, we get a bit more excited about buying someone a gift at Christmas time, perhaps one of our kids, and they really enjoy it. We think, oh, that was a great one. She really liked that or he really liked that. We probably get more excited about that than getting a gift ourselves. You know, um, consider the satisfaction you get from doing a good day's work. You come home and think, well, that was a good day's work, you know, that was very satisfying. Or a few hours ministry, you think, oh, I'm glad I did that. That was, you know, glad I was able to help out. You know, it helps us ourselves. It's counterintuitive. Well, Jesus uh, is about to give the ultimate demonstration of service uh, and greatness in service. Because... Having just said that to be great you must be a servant, he goes on in verse 28 uh, to say, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, um, Jesus now starts to clarify and unpack further the reason he is going to the cross, something which probably wasn't quite dawning on his followers, but he's starting to get clearer about it now. 
It's so he can give his life as a ransom for many. And you know what a ransom is, it's an exchange, isn't it? You know those horrible stories in the news where someone's kidnapped and there's a ransom note, you know, pay us $2 million and you can get your son back or whatever it is. Payment in exchange for someone's life. Jesus gives his life as a ransom for many. And we need that because uh, we've all put ourselves under God's judgment. Uh, All of us are actually far worse than we realise in terms of what we think, say and do, but all of us are far more greatly loved by God than we realise because knowing that he was still in his love prepared to die for us, to offer us forgiveness. In fact, I think think the greater we we appreciate how much we've been forgiven, the more we appreciate God's love. So Jesus is going to give his life as a ransom for many, greatness in service. Well, finally, and fairly briefly, let me just give you one perhaps smaller example of Jesus showing greatness in service in verses 29 to 34. Headed, Jesus demonstrates greatness in service as he heals two blind, blind men. Now, quite a lot could be said about this healing of the two blind men incident. I'm just going to restrict myself to one comment. Consider this. Jesus is about to head into Jerusalem. He is about to be um, flogged and beaten. He's about to suffer. He's about to be crucified. This is only a few days away. Furthermore, he is going to face God the Father's wrath against human wrongdoing and take it upon himself. Furthermore, his followers who he's been training have just been arguing about who's the greatest and who can sit on his right and left, right? Bit disappointing, isn't it? Now, if ever there was a situation which was going to cause stress, surely this is going to be one of them. What are you like under stress? I wonder whether anyone, whether anyone is stressed with Christmas coming up. Uh, how do you respond to stress? Do you get a bit grumpy? Do you fly off the handle uh, too quickly? Do you retreat into your own shell or your own shed? Or do you resort to some sort of substance abuse? I don't know. Jesus is under incredible stress. Two blind men call out to him. The crowds think these blind men aren't important enough to bother Jesus with, tell them to keep quiet. What does Jesus do? He stops. He engages with these two unimportant people and gives them their sight. And they then follow him. You know, greatness in service yet again. Let me conclude. Our term for series concludes this morning with yet another countercultural exhortation. As followers of Jesus, if we are followers of Jesus, we want to follow him. And one of the key ways is to seek to be great in the area of service, in terms of serving others. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And if you're sitting here this morning and not yet a follower of Jesus, can I say it's great that you're coming along and opening yourself up to, you know, thinking about this and and spending time with other people who are seeking to follow Jesus. Jesus says here that he gives his life as a ransom for many. And my hope is that that many will include you. That if you at some point, hopefully soon, will ask Jesus to forgive you and say that you want to follow him and then Jesus' life will be given in your place and your relationship with God will be restored, you'll be adopted into God's family and receive numerous blessings associated with that. So let me close for us in prayer. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you yet again uh, for your son's incredible teaching. So often 
counterintuitive, so often countercultural, but as we reflect on it, we can see its incredible wisdom and value. Lord, we do pray that those of us who, thanks to your grace and mercy, are followers of you, we pray that we would seek to be great in how we serve others. And Lord, I pray, and I'm sure many of us here pray, that if there are some here who are considering uh, your claims and whether to follow you, uh, that they would see that your life was given as a ransom for them. They would take advantage of that, confess their sins and seek to follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.